I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, we have for you a Humanities Encounters article published in CMAJ called The Quietly Defiant Patient. It is written and read by Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. In this narrative, Dr. Gorfinkel shares the story of one patient's cry for help that she still thinks about more than two decades later. Dr. Gorfinkel is a general practitioner in Toronto and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. My name is Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, and I'm reading my piece entitled The Quietly Defiant Patient. It is 11.30 p.m. on a chilly fall night. I'm in the emergency room barely a quarter of the way through my internship. I face a fatigued, bespeckled 50-something-year-old man who has waited a grueling six and a half hours for this moment. I harbor serious doubts that my skills are worthy of such a wait, but I'm not about to share this. The man is wearing a tie and dress shoes after a day's work. He explains that a few months ago he was told that he has esophageal cancer. He came to the emergency department after clearing his throat and bringing up a small amount of blood. He has worked his normal day, has eaten his usual spice-free meals, has neither smoked nor drunk any alcohol, and has even gone for a walk that evening with his partner. He has come to the emergency department unaccompanied. Seeing small amounts of such bleeding is not new to him, he explains, but such bleeding was alarming to his partner, who insisted he'd go to the emergency room. The long wait is behind him, and yet his expression seems to convey two conflicting urges. One is to run away from the hospital's moans and smells. The other is to remain and to learn what his medical prospects are now that he has experienced bleeding. I avoid the man's gaze and pretend not to notice his careful scrutiny. I sense helplessness, both his and mine. I feel like an actor who has yet to learn her lines and yet must appear on stage before a discerning audience. I obtain his history and learn that he's otherwise healthy. I perform a physical examination. Healthy. I later try to convey a sense of confidence by, while examining his blood test results, I hear myself explaining that his blood counts are normal, consistent with his history of a small amount of bleeding. Playing the part of the reassuring clinician is a comfortable role to an intern like me. He cautiously asks whether we might consult the surgeon who previously saw him. I agree that this would be helpful and telephone his surgeon. While doing so, I note the patient worriedly watches, searching for any clues my expression may divulge. The surgeon answers directly. The confidence in the surgeon's voice provides a much-needed sense of security in this tense moment. I turn the speakerphone on. The patient's six-and-a-half-hour wait is now to be rewarded. Tell him he's making a mistake and not having the tumor removed from his esophagus, the surgeon's voice orders. The man's eyes appear to glaze. Is he crying? I pick up the receiver, cutting off the speakerphone. Tell him that once it spreads, it's game over, the surgeon persists. He has to make a decision, and it's dangerous for him to delay. What exactly needs to be done? I ask. What should I tell him? He knows, the surgeon replies. I've explained the surgery to him already. We need to remove the affected part of his esophagus and then sew the two remaining ends back together. This will involve pulling his stomach upward into his chest. 
I turn my back to the patient to face the wall as I learn of the potentially life-saving standard of care for esophageal cancers. The patient surgeon spares few technical details, the expected length of hospital stay, and the known complications, including severe breathing difficulties, pneumonia, heartburn, heart attack, stroke, and death, among others. The conversation leaves little doubt of the grueling and difficult nature of such a surgery, yet the alternative is metastatic disease and death. The need for surgery before the cancer spreads is imperative, the surgeon explains. The telephone call comes to an end, and now I turn to face the man. Your surgeon tells me that he's reviewed your treatment options with you, I tentatively say. I've heard what he has to say. I want to live my life as I did before my diagnosis. I want to live a normal life as long as possible. Having nothing else to offer, I listen. He has a lot to say. I learn that he's clear in his understanding, both of his diagnosis and of his prognosis with and without surgical intervention. The bleeding has stopped, I hear myself saying. Your surgeon will see you when you feel ready. The man gazes at me for a moment longer. I see a tear rolling down his cheek as he considers his option. Thank you for listening. The man then stands up from his hospital chair and leaves. Two days later, the hospital administrator telephones the ward to which I'm assigned. I'm congratulated for helping this man and providing, quote, great care, which perplexingly had been the very limited care of an intern. It feels to me a bit like cheating. Caught early in its course, esophageal cancer is a potentially curable disease. Should it metastasize, the prognosis worsens considerably. I dread what the surgeon may have to say about such great care. This event took place 25 years ago. I never learned what happened to this man after our encounter. The moral dilemma that this represented never made it into a medical journal, nor was it even presented at the hospital surgical rounds. At the time, physicians did not view such encounters as opportunities for improving medical education. If a patient didn't accept the suggested treatment, it was simply felt to be their own fault. They were deemed non-compliant or misguided. Physicians' perspective was a hard and fixed truth and not to be questioned. Looking back, there are many urgent questions that I had not even remotely considered. How had this patient come to the decision to carry on with his routine in the face of his diagnosis? Why had he come to the emergency room department alone? What were his fears? What were his personal goals in his care? Was he in need of counseling? And had his physicians played a role in arriving at his decision? This patient had been one of several emergency consultations that evening. Could time pressure have been a factor in our interaction? There had been a need to prove myself by seeing more patients that night, providing simple responses to difficult questions, lessened waiting times, but perhaps the quick pace came at the cost of missing out on this patient's true medical needs. Asking just a few of these questions 25 years ago may have led this conversation in a very different direction and provided very different conclusions. 25 years ago, 
He had waited six and a half hours to obtain the care of an inexperienced intern who'd known enough to listen, but not enough to ask. And now, 25 years later, this same but older physician better understands the meaning of this patient's quiet defiance. Listen more and talk less before insisting on a clinical path. His defiance had been an olive branch that, if understood, could have helped in guiding his care. It had been our own defiance and not recognizing this that had failed him. He had expressed a need to be more fully understood, and his quiet defiance had gone unrecognized in its potential, a cry to be helped on his own terms. That was the CMAJ Humanities article called The Quietly Defiant Patient. It was read by the author, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a general practitioner and researcher in Toronto. You can find her article on our website, cmaj.ca. Don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. Please also leave us a rating and let us know how we're doing. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.